0: Bane free radio hour
1: on the podcast relics from Atlantis wash up on California beaches having strangely migrated from the correctly named ocean those that touch them are forced to share the fates of the Atlantans, which is to be stuck in traffic and never-ending roadwork for all eternity without air conditioning.
2: Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa.
1: All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel.
2: And I'm Bain Intern Allie Heilman.
1: Allie, tell us about what we have for an interview this time on the podcast.
2: This time we talk to Eric Flint about his new release, Worlds 2, a collection of short fiction that spans several worlds with the written word. There are stories from his Ring of Fire series, Rats, Bats, and Vats Universe a piece from the Honorverse, and even some Eric Flint stories that have never been published before on any timeline.
1: Very cool. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel Son of the Black Sword. But first, here's the news. So, as in Days of Yore, August is once again a contested month. Allie, is there a contest afoot at Bain right now?
2: We have a great new contest to unveil for August based off of Tim Powers' book, Alternate Routes. In the novel, Alternate Routes, ghosts roam the Los Angeles freeways. Now we've been stuck in L.A. traffic ourselves, and let us tell you, it can be a long haul, especially if you're in the car alone. So we were wondering... If you had to spend a couple hours in bumper-to-bumper traffic, whose ghost would you want to pass the time with and why? Let us know in a short 100 words or fewer paragraph for a chance to win a copy of Alternate Roots signed by Tim Powers. Hmm.
1: So I guess that could be a fictional ghost or a real ghost. I would probably limit it to a real ghost, though. Um, but, you know, whatever's the best. Go ahead. Tell us how to enter this contest.
2: Send your entry to contest at bain.com no later than August 20th. Put August contest in the subject field and please remember to include your name. One entry per person please. Winners will be selected by the Bain editorial staff and the winning entry will very likely be published as part of an announcement. So get your ghost on and win a free signed copy of Alternate Routes. We would like to welcome Eric Flint to the podcast. Welcome, Eric.
3: Hi.
2: Eric Flint is the co-author of three-time New York Times bestsellers. He won the Science Fiction Chronicle's Best Novel of the Year Award and has been lauded as the science fiction author of Particular Note, one who can entertain and edify an equal and major measure by Publishers Weekly. Today he is with us to discuss his newest book, World. A collection of short fiction that spans several written worlds. So, Eric, you define yourself as a novelist. What circumstances cause you to write and publish pieces that are not novel length?
3: Uh, Well, for the most part, there are some stories in Worlds 2 that I wrote a long, long time ago. uh, before I really was, was seriously trying to become an author, I just sort of wrote them mostly for my own entertainment. Um, most of what I write in a way of short, all of it actually nowadays is uh, I write on commission. I don't I don't write a story and submit it to a magazine. It's always somebody has asked me, usually for an anthology uh, of one kind or another. Um, you know, someone asked me to write a story and, and so I go ahead and do it. Um uh, for instance, one of the stories in the volume um is called Operation Jubalba and that was a story that Gardner Dozois asked me to write or he was putting together an anthology of a commemorative volume for Paul Anderson. So um you know, it's things like that. I've got a story. Some of the stories are in anthologies I've edited myself. Others are in anthologies someone else edited. That's normally how I do it. I don't... uh... So I wound up writing a fair amount of of short fiction, but I uh, don't... And you have to understand, my definition of short fiction includes long novellas and short novels. Um, So... I'm more likely to write in that length than I actually come to write a short story. Length.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: There are uh, there's
4: like three novella-length pieces here in uh, in Worlds Two. I would say, right, Eric? There's a major Honor Harrington world story, and there's there's a big old long introductory yeah, yeah, piece. Fanat-
3: yeah, okay. I've got yeah. Now, Fanatic is technically still a novella, but it's a very long one. It's, uh, I think, 37,000 words long, which for people who are not familiar with the categorization, novellas are anything between 18,000 and 40,000 words. Above 40,000, it's considered a novel. The Austro-Hungarian Connection, which I wrote as part of the Ring of Fire series, that is a short novel. Um, Technically Fanatic is a long novella. And so is in the matter of Savinkop's a long novella. Everything else is probably either mostly it's a novel at length other than that. Uh, looking through it. Um the first uh anthology I did, Worlds just worlds, um, did have two short novels. Out. I like that length. I, I, I like writing in that length. The problem is that used to be the length of novels. You go back into the 50s and 60s. Those were considered full-length novels. Nowadays, um, publishers are not going to accept something that short. They think for something to be published as a novel in its own, you know, between two covers. Nowadays, you've got to produce at least eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 words minimum. So about the only place you get, Short novels and long novels published Is in uh, anthologies But I do like working in that length
2: You talk about your connection To Mike Resnick in your Conspiracies and in the matter Of the Vinnok stories
3: yeah, so How have talk, your yeah. various
2: co-authors Kind of informed your writing Oh boy <laughs> <laughs>
3: that's, that's a hard question to answer Because I have so many and And they're all different uh, I started collaborating. I, really, I, it was not anything I planned. It just just happened after I got my first novel published. Jim Bain asked me if I'd like to do a collaboration on a series with David Drake. Uh, Jim had a habit of doing that. He would, you know, once an author, yeah, you, you sort of had to write your own first novel just to kind of prove your chops. But after that, Jim would try to. Hook you up with an established, experienced author. Partly as a learning experience, but partly also just to kind of shield the other. The problem authors face in the commercial market is that once you get your first novel published, nobody really heard of you, so you don't tend to sell too well the next two or three novels. Um, you know, some people do, but most don't. And, uh, you then face what Mike Resnick calls the, the the fourth book hurdle, which is that the really hard book to sell, is not the first one, it's the fourth one. Because if you haven't been able to sell really well after three novels, a publisher will drop you. Now, Bain doesn't really operate that way, but part of what Jim would do is he'd hook you up with an established author, and that would keep your numbers up, so you'd sort of get through, the, get over that hump. And it worked with me. I, I wrote, the next, after my first novel, the next four novels I wrote uh, were with David Drake. Uh, then I did my next solo novel, which was 1632, which sold very well. And after that, I just found I'd enjoyed collaborating, so I kept doing it, and most of my collaboration these days comes through the 1632 series, and it's with new authors emerging out of that series that I'm working with. That's most of my collaborations now. I'm not trying to get around the question you ask me. It's just very hard to answer it because, you know, I give you different answers with every one of them. All collaborations are, are kind of unique. They're, they're not, you know, cut from the same mold. And you get something different from all of them.
2: Okay. You add into your stories a lot of idioms and ideas of today's society, such as Tabella cat or the best-laid schemes of mice and men gang afagle. How do you create Mm -hmm. your blend of new worlds With some of the ideas of this one I don't
3: know because it's not something I even do Particularly all that consciously I mean it's not like I'm setting out to do that It just kind of comes naturally To me. I'm less averse Than a lot of authors Are to uh, what's Often derisively Called info dumping which is You know just presenting Readers with information that may not Be immediately or directly relevant to What's happening in the story Although I do try to make it something that's immediately connected to what's happening in the story. But I think people just find a lot of things interesting. And you can use a novel to explain a whole lot of things as you're going along and make, you know, all kinds of cultural references. Other authors enjoy doing things like referring to pop music and things like that. But um, I have my own way of doing it. There's like uh, three references
4: in these stories to that particular Burns poem that seems to have... Uh stuck with you. In fact, it incurs, well, occurs across universes. Uh,
3: there's that one and uh, the two that I tend to use a lot, or that one, and the other one I tend to use a lot, the famous quip by um, Johnson that, you know, the prospect of being hanged concentrates the mind wonderfully. I think I use those just because they're so applicable, Well, uh, and there are so many Situations in which they uh, they're very appropriate. I, I should probably watch out though, because one of the things I've noticed is that almost in any story I write, I'll tend to get fixated on one word, and I won't realize I'm doing it, and I'll just use it a lot. And I, I've learned I have to sort of try to keep an eye out for that. The first time I became aware of it was I wrote a novella called Cartago de Linda Asked for an anthology that David Drake was putting together. And I wrote the story and sent it to David. And, uh, you know, I called him up on the phone, you know, a week later, to see uh, what his reaction to the story was. And he liked the story, but he said, are you aware that you used the word bizarre 22 times in this story? And, you know, I thought that lot his story. And I said, 22 times, eight counter. You know, things like that'll happen. Um, and so I've tried to be aware of that. I'll have to think in the future whenever I'm about to use one of those two aphorisms that maybe I've overdone it. Uh, I do like them, though.
2: My particular favorite was the Austro-Hungarian connection. And I wanted to know mm-hmm. how you came up with your characters and how you incorporated them into your stories after you, know, you create them in these short fiction pieces.
3: I came up with the character of Jonas Drugev myself. The Hungarian nobleman is one of the central characters in that story. Most of the other characters, though, were actually initially introduced into the series by Virginia the Mars, either in stories she wrote on her own or um, she and I collaborated on a couple of novels. The first one was uh, 1634, The Bavarian Crisis. Uh, so the characters of Noel and Denise... Beasley in particular were introduced by uh, they're originally uh, uh, Virginia's characters, not mine. Um, And Eddie Junkers was actually, I think, originally introduced in the series, I think by Paula Goodland, I won't swear to that, but then Virginia sort of adopted them. There's a lot of that happened in the 1632 series where characters will sort of get passed from one author to another. And it's... I like those characters and so i enjoyed working with them and developing them to me in some ways the central character although now it's hard to say the two central characters are really noel and denise i mean jonathan is the third he's the, the male character but i actually find the two female characters most interesting um they're very different noel's uh very straight-laced um uh, very prim and proper. Uh, she's a devout Catholic. By the time she gets married, which doesn't happen in that story, it happens. Uh, uh, she and John of get married in Ottoman Onslaught. But she's still technically a virgin by the she gets married. I mean, she's into her 20s by then. Denise is very, very different. She's a very brash teenager. Uh, her father was a, a a biker. He gets killed in a recent incident. Quite heroically, and I find her a lot of fun to work with. Her and her best friend Minnie Hoodle there. So I don't. I'm trying to remember how I wanted to bring the Austrian Empire into the series. That they, you know, it had been sort of there. You know, everybody knew it. It was the Habsburg. One of the major Habsburg domains. It was very important, but we hadn't really done much with it and so i wanted to bring those characters in and i uh, used that story to do it so there's political themes introduced in there and then there's also you know i just think it's a really enjoyable adventure uh, i was also able to develop some stuff around aviation in that story can you give us a little bit of the
4: give us a little bit of the setup of that story what the political situation is and who uh these people that janos is leading away um, who they are.
3: What happens in the story, the basic plot is is that a group of, small group of Americans basically defect to the Aust- and it's kind of a weird defection because they're not technically at war with Austria and it's not like they don't have the Right to move to Austria, but they steal a bunch of stuff on their way. And they, they, they're they actually ducking out of some financial issues. And they got offered a good deal by the Austrian Empire if they'd moved to uh, Vienna and sort of help the Austrians, you know, transfer uptime technology. So they began by taking it on the lamb. Uh, and Jonas Druguth is the one who engineers it. He's uh, serving as an agent for the emperor. He's a good friend of the new emperor, the very young, Ferdinand III, uh, who just has become the emperor. His father died uh, in 16th, 1634. So he begins by shepherding these people from the United States of Europe into, uh, into Austria, and Two people set out in pursuit of them, uh, and those are Noelle Stowe and her sidekick, (laughs) um, Eddie Junkers. Noelle is, both of them work for a uh, department in the uh, government, the state government. It's not the national government. The state government is referring to Van And their department is officially the Department of Economic Research, something like that. But what they really are is agents. They're kind of, you can think of them sort of very loosely as FBI agents. Anyway, they take out in pursuit of these characters. And then Denise Beasley takes out in pursuit of them. And she winds up sweet-talking one of the test pilots for one of the two aircraft manufacturers to fly her. And then they accidentally drop bomb Noel, and Eddie, thinking they're enemies... And then they crash the plane, and then they all get captured by Janos Drougev. So Drougev keeps this whole thing going, this group of defectors and the two different parties of people chasing after him that he arrested, basically. I mean, he's forcing them to come with him because he doesn't want him to be able to go and um uh, that word to the authorities where he is? Anyway, he gets them across the mountains, and in the course of that, a attraction develops between him and Noel, and that then becomes a long running theme in the series as a whole. It, it, it stretches out over several books, and it's not until you get to Ottoman Onslaught, which was published just less than two years ago, that they finally get married. Boom. So what the story becomes as it develops is really a romance, and the rest of it, in a way, is 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 a sort of vehicle for that to happen. That's basically what the story is. I think that I think that yeah. uh, I think I catch it all. Oh,
4: um, I love that the uh, uh, sends her a a rose and a bullet. <laughs> that's a, that's a what? <laughs> oh yeah, doesn't he, yeah, yeah. Doesn't he... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well,
3: part of what happens at the end is he's very good friends with the Emperor Ferdinand III, and the Habsburg dynasty, which was the premier dynasty Europeans ever produced, um, at least after the fall of the Roman Empire. uh, The Habsburgs lasted for about 500 years, and they, at different times, they ruled Austria, Spain. you know they were the most prominent powerful dynasty in Europe for half a millennium and there's a, a famous saying which is that the uh the Habsburgs got so powerful not by fighting wars but by marriage they just married very intelligently and there was a saying uh it was a saying it's been around for centuries of others fight war Thou happy Austria Mary and the same kind of thing happens in this is what happens is the emperor is counseling his friend on how to carry out this courtship of you know this woman who's was born 350 years in the future so there's a big cultural disparity between them but uh, it all works out in the end
2: The stories that you include in Worlds 2 about the Ring of Fire series often have romantic undertones. Got Eddie's kind of budding romance in there.
3: Was that a personal
2: choice to bring in a whole bunch of different little romances, or how did that come about?
3: Well, the truth is there's a lot of romance all through that series. Um, actually, there's a lot of romance in pretty much anything I write. It, what happens in Steady Girl is there are three stories from, not counting the big with the long one, the, uh, the short novel, Austro-Hungarian Connection. There are three 1632 series short stories. Two of them are not romances. They focus on uh, Elizabeth and her brother, Rupert. These were... The children of one of the high, highest noblemen in Europe, he actually for a while, became king of Bohemia, and they are they become important characters in several stories. So that's the two stories focused on them. But the third one, Steady Girl. The interest between Eddie and Denise actually begins in the Austrian connection, Austro-Hungarian connection. That's where they first meet, and then it just Tells the story of how that progresses, and it's uh, again, it's a, it's one of these where Eddie is a downtimer and she's an uptimer, and he's trying to figure out how to quarter because uh, you know he's used to certain customs, and Americans have very different customs. The same theme happens in uh, 1634, the Baltic War, where there's a German uh, farmer who's trying to quarter an American. Uh, social worker. I, I find that's just kind of interesting to write and, and uh, a lot of fun and there's always a lot of humor in those things. Uh, so it's easy to bring out. There's, I think, quite a bit of humor in most of what I write. I really enjoy the character of Denise Beasley. Uh She's appeared now in a number of different things I've written. Her and her good friend and best friend, Minnie Hooglmer, who uh, was... Just sort of Denise's sidekick for several stories, but then in the Ottoman onslaught, I turned her into a major character. All right.
2: Um, how about we move on to one of the other stories? Um, we've already kind of mentioned Fanatic, and in your preface to Fanatic, you mentioned that it's one of your favorites. What did you enjoy so much about Fanatic?
3: It was an interesting story to write because the the essential character is Victor Kasha, who I was actually introduced into David. Uh, Weber's Honor Harrington series in a short novel I wrote for him uh, called From the Highlands, which appeared in a third of the Honor Harrington anthologies, and then it was re- reprinted, reissued in my first anthology, Worlds, and that introduced the character Victor Koshaba. But when he's introduced in that story, he's he's young and he's just newly graduated from the State Security Academy. And, you know, he's a newbie. And it shows in the course of that story. The next story I wrote with Victor and it was a novel that David and I collaborated on called uh, Crown of Slaves. And Victor is a central character there. But by the time he appears there, he's very different. He's, he's become a very self-assured, confident, uh, extremely good secret agent. And so When David asked me to write another story for the next anthology, I discussed it with him, and we decided it would be a good idea for me to write a story that depicted how we got from that first Victor to the one that shows up later in Crown of Slaves. And so that's what that story is designed to show. But the way it's done is Victor is never the viewpoint character. Uh, The viewpoint character is another man who's looking at him and watching him and can't stand him because, you know, he just considers a guy, you know, a rabid fanatic, which is where the title comes from. And he behaves that way. I mean, it, it's, you know, the way it's depicted, it's, it's you don't know what he's thinking. Or, you know, all you do is see how he's behaving from the viewpoint of somebody else. And all the way through until almost the very end of the story, he's... This very um, harsh, cold-blooded, sometimes very brutal man, and it's it's you know, and but then it gets revealed at the end of the story that he's actually the hero of it. Uh, it's just an interesting. Um, it's an interesting challenge for a writer to do that.
4: How did you plot this out, Eric? That's uh, did you go into this writing? Did you pants it as they say? Or or this is so complex a story of what but bitter's actually up to here that it seems like it has to be something you might PowerPoint or something
3: Well, I plot I almost always plot out something. Not necessarily a short story, but uh if it's anything that's novella length or novel length, I'm gonna plot it out ahead of time. I learned that Years and years ago, when I, it's actually one of the things I learned from David Gregg. I used to, when I first started writing, I didn't plot. I just started writing. Um, and then early on, after I published a couple of novels, I was chatting with David on the phone. And I I said to him, I don't remember what the context was, but I said to him that I wrote character-driven stories. And David started laughing, and I said, what's so funny? He said, Eric, all new writers say they write character-driven stories. So did I. He said, uh, then I noticed I had a whole bunch of unfinished manuscripts. He said, how many unfinished novel manuscripts do you have on your hard drive? And I sort of hemmed and hawed and said, "Eh, about half a dozen. He said, yeah. He said, then I learned a plot, and now I don't have any unfinished manuscripts. So I started, For I don't like to do it, but I force myself to learn to start plotting and to plot ahead of time. And what i found is it does two things. One, it improves the story. Secondly, it saves me time in the long run because I'll have to spend a few days plotting a story out ahead of time. And I come up with pretty detailed plots. But then once I start writing, it makes it writing a lot smoother, easier, and quicker. So it's been quite a while since I wrote Fanatic, and I don't remember. I don't even know if I have the plot still around. I probably do. But I know I I had to think it out ahead of time, because it's not so much that the plot is all that complex, but the presentation of it is, since that you've got to have all this stuff... It has to be shown from the viewpoint of someone other than the person who's really at the center of the story. Um, that's true, but at the same and, time, but Eric,
4: the viewpoint character also has a secret that he manages to keep until the very end.
3: Yeah, that's true. As well. It yeah, that's true. That's just, true. It's just and really he, cool. Yeah. But, yeah, no, and he's a very attractive character in his own right, and then and, and he reappears in the series in... Uh, in one of the later novels, David and I did together, Cauldron of Ghosts. No, actually, I think he appeared in uh, Torture Freedom too. <laughs> I tend to forget. Yeah. Um that's uh, Yuri. Uh, I, I can't think d- his last. Yeah, yeah, Yuri Rademacher, Yeah, yeah, he's a kind of basically nice guy who just sort of, kind of by accident, wound up being you know part of the the ruthless secret police, which he doesn't particularly like, and. Well, anyway, yeah. So this is all seen from his point of view, and he does not like, you know, the character Richard Shack, because The guy just seemed to him like a fanatic. Um, which as it turns out, can you tell out, us a little of
4: the uh, of the setup of the story?
3: We're we're at this place um, called the
4: the Marines or something like that.
3: Which one is on a fanatic? Yes, yes. Uh, okay. What happens there is it takes place uh, if. this is not going to mean a lot to people who aren't sort of familiar with David's Weber's Honor Harrington series, which is a very complex, sprawling series in its own right. I mean, he's got I don't know, what, 20 novels, something written in that series. Um, And I came in long, I mean, I came in sort of midway, so uh, I had to fit these stories into an already existing complex framework. But this story happens just before the the, the final coup d'état where the um, where the, the sort of ruthless dictatorship is overthrown and the hero and of Richard the People's Republic is actually, of Haven Yeah, yeah, right. And the the central character, uh Victor Desai, is actually part of the Revolutionary movement, but nobody realizes that where he's coming, because uh, he, he is himself a member in good standing of the secret police, uh, and he arrives in this rather isolated star system because the, his predecessor was murdered, and he's initially sent out there to solve, you know, find out what happened, and then what happens is he seizes basically takes control of the system and does it under the guise that he's trying to ferret out who the murderers were uh, and because he suspects treason. What he's actually doing is something quite different, but it's not clear to the people who are watching him. He's just scaring them. Uh, But he does things kind of oddly. The, The way the way the story works is just i did a good job with it if i say so myself is that victor is presented he is such a intimidating character and and you have to portray that in the actual writing because you can't do any of it from his viewpoint it's all got to be people looking at him and he just intimidates everybody and if, if this if it's written right and i did um, it's not hard for the reader to understand why this guy, even though he's quite young, um, you know, winds up running this whole star system with an iron hand. And what he's actually doing is laying the groundwork for a revolution, but you don't realize that until the end. And the guy who's watching him is is actually sympathetic, would have been sympathetic to what he's doing if he understood that's what he was doing. Oh, uh, it's it's a, it's a tricky story. I enjoyed writing it a lot, <laughs> and I think it's a very good story.
4: It has a nice romance as well. Oh yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. It does between uh, Yuri and uh, and uh, Sharon Justice, who's another secret policeman that he's got a Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and then that's continued later in uh, a couple of novels David and, uh, and I wrote later. There are very few stories of mine that don't have a romance in them, Uh, especially longer stories, short stories might not. There tends to be um, a lot of romance in in anything. 1632 has four romances in it. I just enjoy writing them, and it's kind of ironic because the stereotype is that women write romance, men don't. But with several of my uh, female collaborators... They wanted me to do it, you know, because they didn't really want to write the romance. So I, I did that when uh, a book I did with Marilyn Kuzmata and the one books I did with Kathy Wentworth. uh both said, you write the romance part. I don't want to do it. I want to write the action part.
2: Let's talk about another one of the longer pieces that you have, Operation Zalba. Is that how you pronounce it?
3: Yeah, the X is, is G, it's Zibaba. It's a, a Mayan name. That story is... Um, that was written for the Poole Anderson commemorative volume, and what Gardner wanted people to do was was pick whichever one of Poole Anderson's various universes that he created and write a story in it. So, you know, as a kind of homage to his legacy. And I chose to write mine in the universe that he created um, in his novel called Operation Chaos, which is a fantasy novel I've read years. I read it when I was a youngster, and I always liked it a lot. So he wrote two stories, in it. he wrote two novels, Operation Chaos, the first one, and then he did a sequel called Operation Luna. And my story is set in the same framework, although I don't use his character. I, I just felt that would be difficult. So I created a well, set of characters of my own. And basically, it's just an adventure story um, that's in the same setting. And it's kind of, I, I tried to make it a fairly lighthearted story because those novels by Phil Anderson, well, they're certainly not comedies, but there's a certain kind of light flavor to them. Nothing really... I mean, some of the novels he wrote had some grim stuff happening. No, that doesn't happen in Operation Chaos. It's 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 a more cheery kind of story, and so I tried to to have that same feel come into Operation Jabalba, and that story is set in a Mayan mythological framework. Um, which I use that because partly because I, for various reasons, I studied a fair amount of that. Um, And secondly, it's really grisly as all hell. So, you know, you can use it. I know this sounds a little weird, but you can use that really grisly stuff to tell a story that's kind of not a comedy, but it's pretty lighthearted just because it tends to get so over the top. And um, the Jabalba in the title is a reference to the Lords of Jabalba, which were 12 gods the Mayans had who were, Really, and they weren't their only guys. These are the twelve sort of really nasty guys, um, and they are the villains of the piece. Anyway, that's Bain, uh they put out. Bane put out that book. By the
4: way, it's called Multiverse.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah I was originally I I don't know it. which publisher originally did it, but then yeah, Bane uh, picked it up and did the. I know Bane did the park and I think uh, we reissued. Uh, we did a trade, trade too. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, yes, was in a trade. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice anthology. Yeah. Um, I say so myself. Yeah. What else?
4: Uh, also, in here, are some collaborations with Dave Freer and uh, and some others as well. Um, what is? Uh, are you ever going to revisit that rats and bats universe? Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that? Just remind people that it exists because it's
3: some cool stuff. Yeah, it's. Uh, I wrote though That was the first I've written why Dave Freer and I have now collaborated on I think it's 10 novels. Uh, Sometimes just he and I and sometimes the two of us with Mercedes Lackey. Rats, Bats and Bats was the very first book we did together. And it's based, the basic idea for it came from a short story I wrote, uh, which I'm trying to remember if it's included in this volume. Hold on. Let me look at the table of contents. I know I included a camera from this one of the first anthologies. Just give me a second. Yeah, it's in yeah, it's in this volume, Worlds Two. It's called The Soldier's Complaint. And it's very short. It's only fifteen hundred words. Um and I wrote it just kind of on a whim a long time ago. And then when David and I started talking uh David and I started talking about doing a novel together, which is actually Jim Bain's suggestion. He said, you know, because David and I, were, we, and I met each other on Bain's bar. I, we met virtually because he lived in South Africa. So uh, it wasn't for several years that I actually met him in person when he and his wife uh, Barb came to the United States for uh, the World Con in 2000. It was held up in Chicago, virtually where I live. Um, and so... Jim suggested that we do a novel together, so Dave and I started talking, and I said, you know, I've got this short story. I never got it published. Um, I, I've always liked the basic idea, so I, said, so I sent it to him, and he liked the basic idea, too, so we used that to develop that whole setting. It's basically, it, it, it's a story told in time of war, and between uh, humans in a colony planet and these uh, sort of ferocious, insect-like aliens, although it then turns out by the end of the story that the aliens who are actually behind all this are the real enemy are the ones that humans think are their friends at the beginning. <laughs> And it just tells this story of this one draftee, the grunt, and the gimmick, because it's more fully developed than that. But the premise is that this colony, you know, it's a colony. It's not that heavily populated. They wind up genetically engineering. Well, they call them rats. They're not actually rats. They're they're uh, they're actually mostly developed from insectivore stock. But they look like rats, and people call them rats, and they kind of have a ratty temperament. And uh, and bats are also developed, and they become soldiers. So you've got these uh, humans mixed in with rats and bats who are also soldiers fighting off these aliens. Um, and the rats have one temperament. Which is they don't take anything too seriously and they're 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 very, very pragmatic about everything and and whereas the bats tend to be idealists. And I yeah, it's hard to describe. You have to read the stories, but I think David and I did a good job of 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 mixing in these three species and they're very different temperaments and stuff and there is a romance at the center of the story between the, the grunt and and they wind up rescuing the daughter of one of the wealthiest men in the colony who's uh suffered brain damage but she's got the same these rats and bats are kind of cyborgs because part of the reason they're intelligent is because they have uh computer chips on them and it was a lot of fun to write, and um, we did a sequel called The Rats, the Vats, and the Ugly, and then we wrote a prequel, which is actually a novella, and and actually, the three stories make a complete whole. It's a trilogy. It starts with Genie out of the Vat, Rats, Bats and Vats is actually a second story in it, and... And the third and final story is Rats, Bats, and the Ugly. And one of the central arc story arcs, believe it or not, is a romance between a a man and a rat. And if you're wondering how we pull that off, well, you have to read the book. That sort of starts the first story and ends the last story. Um, Anyway, I did it later um, because I I raised it with Dave because – By then, I was editing Jim Bain's Universe Magazine, and I I suggested that Dave, we write a story together, you know, go back to the Rats, Bats, and Rats, so we wrote one called Crawl Space, which takes place about 100 years after the events that take place in the original trilogy. Uh, As to whether we'll ever return to it, probably not. It's, um, I mean, the problem is, it's fun to work in, but... You know, I've got so much of my play already, and so does he, that I just don't know that we're going to ever go back to that. Um,
4: yeah. Well, Crawl Space is in the collection. Let's uh, mm-hmm. find out what Eric is working on right now.
3: Right now, I am working on my next solo mainline novel in the 1632 series. Which is, the 1632 series is a huge, sprawling Series that now has I think we're up to 21 novels and 12 anthologies plus a magazine that's been running for going on 12 years. But there are some novels I call them the main line because they're sort of the spinal cord of the whole system. And those are either I either write them alone or a couple of them I wrote with uh, David Weber. And um, the last one, which is the sixth novel in the main line, was Ottoman Onslaught that came out in the beginning of last year, and this one, which is called 1637, A Polish Maelstrom, is the direct sequel to that, and it's scheduled for publication, Bains already got it slotted for publication uh, in April, Uh, so I've got to get it finished, Um, and it's going quite well. It's going quite well, and i- you know but that's what I'm working on right now. There are other things that I can't write around the clock, so there are other things, especially because I do so much collaborative writing i I'm also doing other things at the same time. I writes with whom I've collaborated on five novels so far. He just sent me a couple of days ago the first draft of. Uh, the the third and final novel we're doing in the Castaway series. And that trilogy was a follow-on to a trilogy we initially did, which we call the Boundary Trilogy. The three novels in that were Boundary, Threshold, and Portal. So I've been reading through that, and I'm taking notes and doing some line editing while I go, and... Depending on what I think when I get done I may do some more writing on that. I don't know. Reich's gotten to be such a good writer in his own that I, I can Nowadays, I feel kind of awkward, a little embarrassed because I, I, the first novel we did together, I did a, a lot of work on it. But with each succeeding novel, he does more and more, which is just an increase in his skills. So that came in. I'm also doing a project with Kevin Eikenberry. It's not exactly a collaboration. He's already written a novel called The Crossing, which is set in my c v Shards framework. It's not a 1632 novel. It's more like Time Spike or another C. Shard produces a different time travel event. He's already written the novel, and it's finished, and it's it's. It, I, I gave him a fair amount of help on it, but I didn't do enough to put my name on it. And what I'm doing instead is I'm writing a novella. I'm gonna write a novella which connects to his story, and we'll publish the two together in a volume. So that I've got sitting here that I've been working on, and Walter Hunt and I are doing a novel uh, called The Sundering, which is part of the series that we created with uh, Kevin Anderson and some other people. The first novel of that series just came out a couple of months ago. It was written by uh, Kevin Anderson and uh, Sarah Hoyt called Uncharted. It came out in May, and it's set in a kind of costume, author, history, and fantasy, which is set in colonial America. And uh, Walter Hunt and I are doing the second novel in that. We're close to having it finished. Um, I just wrote my uh, a bunch of chapters for that that I sent Walter before I started working on the novel. I'm working on now, and then he's working on his. He'll kick it back to me. There's a couple chapters I still have to write, and then we'll have that wrapped up. And I think that's it at the moment. Chuck Gannon is going to be starting on the first draft very soon of the next collaboration he and I will do in the 1632 series, which is called 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. And that's a direct sequel to the novel he and I did a few years back uh, called 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. But I haven't talked to Chuck uh a few weeks. He's close to starting and or has starting. I'm not sure which. Uh, he's... Got other projects with ongoing, of course. And yeah. uh, I'm probably missing something, but that's what I can think of. Uh, the thing I'm mostly <laughs> bearing down on myself is the novel I'm writing. Obviously, I mean that's that's you know that's what I get up in the morning and work on all day. Like yeah. I broke off to do this talk, and I will be going back what, uh, as soon as we hang up.
4: And uh the other thing about Worlds Two that I do want to mention is that uh you there's some really early flat stories in here that I don't know if anybody's ever seen anywhere else before.
2: No, and they are
4: sort of uh, alleg- allegorical even. They're kind of like almost slim like uh from, from like the Siberia and way. then you take on uh you do some uh some or, or maybe like the joking in uh in uh Highline's uh, Stranger in Strange Land. Uh, you take on fundamentalism in these stories.
3: Well, yeah, it's it, it's that's what so fundamentalism. It's it's because that term can mean different things. It's 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 literalism. It's it's there are some yeah. uh, there are some um, preachers, uh, especially ones who collect a lot of money on TV, who claim that they are interpreting the Bible literally. Uh, that work for. Word. And if you do that, you, well, what usually would happen is one of them would piss me off, you know, because of some ridiculous or usually nasty thing, they would say. And just out of, because I was irritated, I wrote these before I was trying to become a writer. I mean, I wrote those way earlier in my life. And so I would just sit down and write one of these stories. Uh, There are three of them that are in this uh, anthology. The only one I ever tried to get published was uh The truth about the Goddard, which I sent in many years ago. Uh oh God, what's it, twenty five years ago now, I guess. I sent it into uh magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And I got a very, very nice, uh, rather long handwritten rejection letter from uh Kristen Kaplan Rush, uh who's since become a friend of mine. I didn't know her at the time. Um and she rejected the story but she said she really enjoyed it personally, but she said she didn't think it was suitable for the magazine. And I couldn't argue with her because I didn't think it was suitable either. I just sent it in because what the hell, why not? It's hard, to, it's hard to describe those stories. I mean, those stories I really kind of wrote for myself, and I hope other people enjoy them. They're all comics. They're not meant to be, I mean, they're comedies. They're not, uh, not serious stories, and... uh I enjoyed writing them. I hope you enjoy reading. And you can only find them in Worlds 2. So, uh, you you them can them only down? find them there. They don't exist anywhere else, yeah.
2: Well, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Sure.
2: I'd like to remind anyone who's listening that Worlds 2 is going to be out on the Bain website and in booksellers everywhere. So please make sure to pick up a copy because it's really well written and the stories are really good.
4: <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Eric.
3: Yeah, thank you.
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Korea, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts, until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made casteless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
0: Both of them had magic in their blood. Curious, the black shape slowly lifted itself from the floor and slid forward into the light. The demon flowed so smoothly that its movements were like pouring oil. It had to twist its wide shoulders to fit through the door. The soft wood crumbled to bits as the demon's razor hide rubbed against it. Once on the platform, the demon no longer had to slouch. It rose to its full height, towering over Ashok. The young Nayak at the jungle's edge hadn't been exaggerating its size at all. Sighting a demon on dry land at all was a rare experience. Most men would go their entire lives without seeing one. Ashok had seen four, and this was the biggest by far. Demons came in many shapes and sizes, and it was whispered that truly vast beings had been seen amid the waves. But the ones he'd fought had been shaped like men, mostly, though each of them had been distorted in a different way. This one was too tall, its limbs too long, its fingers longer still. And each ended in a black point. There were three fingers, splayed wide with a translucent webbing between them. Its legs were too short, too squat. Its head was a lump, nearly featureless except for a horizontal line that divided the lump in half. The oceans belong to demons. Land belongs to man. So says the law. Ashok slowly lifted his arm, revealing his black steel blade. The line across its otherwise blank face split open, revealing teeth, black and shiny and sharp as the rest of its body. It let out a hiss of air that sounded surprisingly dry and raspy. That was the first sound he had ever heard a demon make. It must have recognized the sword that had been dispatching its kind since the age of kings. The penalty for trespass for either side is death. Now they understood each other. The demon bolted. Ashok went after it. Demons were faster than men. But a protector was no longer just a man. He caught it before it could get around the side of the castless barracks and struck. Nothing in the world was sharper than an ancestor blade, and it cut smoothly through the demon's back. Their blood was thin and milky, and it shot out as if it were kept under a great deal of pressure. That wound was deep enough to fell any normal being, but it only stung the demon. It spun, swinging at him, but Ashok dodged aside as its claws obliterated the barracks wall. Moving as fast as lightning, the demon lashed out over and over again, Ashok moved back, placing his body to avoid the blows, and turning aside the rest with his sword. The demon's claws and bones were grown from a material harder than steel, nearly as hard as the ancient sword, and glowing sparks rose whenever they met. Ashok was not concerned for his sword. The chips were from the demon's bones, because nothing could harm this sword except dishonor. He had fought and defeated three demons, but combined, the many bearers of Angruvedal had killed nearly a hundred, and though their memories were not perfectly clear, their instincts remained, and they belonged to him now. The demon's erratic movements were expected almost predictable. Ashok dodged a mighty blow and ran the edge of his sword up the demon's arm in response. White blood hit him in the face. Demons didn't have veins and arteries like a man. Instead, the interior of their limbs was a solid slab of dense meat, white as snow. All of it soaked in their thin blood. But like a man, let the blood out and they began to weaken. The protector attacked, lunging forward to drive several inches of black steel between its flexible ribs. Their vitals were hard to reach, and even when pierced, they didn't die quickly. The creature flowed back, out of reach of the sword. If demons felt pain, they never showed it. They were like protectors that way. It leapt to the side, crashing through a railing to fall to the next level. He thought about letting it go. No one really knew how demons' bodies worked, so maybe he'd wounded it enough that it would slink off and die... But the law was clear. The penalty was death, so he had to be certain. If the demon couldn't dive directly into the depths, it would head for the surf. Where the two worlds met was no man's land, but in anything not shallow enough for a man to see his feet, evil lurked. And then Ashok would be the trespasser. He had to catch it before then. That was
1: another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Allie Hollman, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz.
2: And a bottle of Elven joy juice, a pinch of fairy dust snuff, and loads of thanks and praise for Eric Flint, author of Worlds 2.
1: Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the
0: stars.